Chapter Eleven of A Dark Night's Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anthony Orr. A Dark Night's Work by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter Eleven. In a few days, Miss Munro obtained a most satisfactory reply to one of her letters of inquiries as to whether a daily governess could find employment in East Chester. For once, the application seemed to have come at just the right time. The canons were most of them married men with young families. Those at present in residence welcomed the idea of such an instruction as Miss Munro could offer for their children, and almost answer that for their successors in office. This was a great step gained. Miss Munro, the daughter of a professor to this very cathedral, had a secret unwillingness to be engaged as a teacher by any wealthy tradesman there, but to be received into the canons' families, in almost any capacity, was like going home. Moreover, besides the empty honour of the thing, there were many small pieces of patronage in the gift in the chap chapter, such as a small house opening on the close, which has formerly belonged to the verger, but which are now vacant, and which was offered to Miss Monroe in nominal rent. Eleanor had once more sunk into her old depressed passive state. Mr. Ernest and Miss Monroe, modest and undecided as they were both in general, had to fix and arrange everything for her. Her great interest seemed to be in the old servant Dixon, and her great pleasure seemed to lie in seeing Tim, and talking over old times. So her two friends talked about her little knowing what a bitter, stinging pain her pleasure was. In vain, Eleanor tried to plan how they could take Dixon with them to East Chester. If he had been a woman, it would have been a feasible step, for they would only keep one servant, and Dixon, capable and versatile as he was, would not do for that servant. All that passed through Eleanor's mind, it's still a question of whether Dixon would have felt the love of his native place, and with all its associations and remembrances, or his love of Eleanor, the stronger. But he was not put to the proof, he was only told that he must leave, and seeing Eleanor's extreme grief at the idea of their separation, he set himself to comfort her by every means in his power, reminding her, with tender choice of words, how necessary it was that he should remain on the spot, in Mr. Osterban's service, by any small influence he might have, every project alteration in the garden that contained the dreadful secret. He persisted in this view, though Eleanor repeated, with pertinacious anxiety, the care in which Mr. Johnson had taken, in drawing up the lease, to provide against any change or alteration being made in the present disposition of the house or grounds. People in general were rather astonished at the eagerness Miss Wilkins showed to sell all of the Ford Bank furniture. Even Miss Monroe was a little scandalised at the want of this sentiment, although she said nothing about it, indeed justified the steps by telling everyone how wisely Eleanor was acting, that the large, handsome tables and chairs would be very much out of place in keeping with the small, oddly-shaped room to their future house in East Chester Close. None knew how strong was the instinct of self-preservation. May almost, almost be called, which impelled Eleanor to shake off, at any cost of present pain, the incubus of a terrible remembrance. She wanted to go into an unhaunted dwelling in a free, unknown country, as she felt of it her only chance of sanity. Sometimes she thought her sentence would not hold together till the time when those arrangements were ended, but she did not speak to anyone about her feelings, poor child, to whom she could she speak on the subject but to Dixon, nor did she define them to herself. All she knew was that she was going nearly mad as possible, and if she did, she feared that she might betray her father's guilt. All this time she never cried, or varied from her dull, passive demeanour, and there were blessed tears of relief that she shed when Miss Munro, herself weeping bitterly, told her to put her head out of the post-chaise window, for at the next turning of the road they would catch the last glimpse of Hanley Church spire. Late one October evening, Eleanor had her first sight of East Chester Close, where she was to pass the remainder of her life. Miss Munro had been backwards and forwards between Hamley and East Chester more than once, while Eleanor remained at the parsonage, 
so she had not only the pride of proprietorship in the whole of the beautiful city, but something of desire of hospitality welcoming Eleanor to their joint future home. Look, the fly must take a long road round because of our luggage, but behind those old walls of the cannon's gardens, that high-pitched roof with the clumps of stone crop on the walls near it, is Canon Wilson's, whose four little girls I am to teach. Hark, the great cathedral clock. How proud I used to be of its great boom when I was a child. I thought all the other church clocks in town sounded so shrill and poor after that, and that when I cons which I considered mine especially. There are rooks flying towards the elms in the close. I wonder if they are the same that used to be there when I a little girl. They say that the rook is a very long-lived bird, and I could swear as if they are the way they are cawing, eh, hey, you may smile, Eleanor, but I now understand the lines of those grey used to say so prettily. I feel the gales from ye below, a momentary bis bestow, and breathe a second spring. Now, dear, you must get out. This flagged walk leads to our front door, but our back rooms, which are the pleasantest, looks on to the close, and the cathedral, and the lime-tree walk, and the deanery, and the rookery. It was a mere slip of a house, the kitchen being wisely placed close to the front door, so reserving the pretty view for the little dining-room, of, out of which a glass door opened into a small walled-in garden, which had the entrance into the close. Upstairs was a bedroom in the front, which Miss Monroe had taken for herself, because, as she said, she had associations with the back of every house of the high street, which Eleanor mounted to the pleasant chamber above the tiny drawing-room, both of which looked on to the vast and solemn cathedral, and the peaceful, dignified close. East Chester's Cathedral is Norman, with a low, massive tower, a grand, majestic nave, and a choir full of stately, historic tombs. The whole city is so quiet and decorous a place that the perpetual daily chants and hymns of praise seemed to sound so far and wide over the roofs of the houses. Eleanor soon became a regular attendant at the morning and evening services. The sense of worship calmed and soothed her achy wearing heart, and to be punctual to those cathedral hours she roused and exerted herself, when probably doing nothing else would have been sufficient to this end. By and by Miss Monroe formed many acquaintances she picked up, or was picked up by, old friends and the descendants of old friends. The grave and kindly canons, whose children she taught, called upon her with their wives, and talked over the former deans and chapters, of whom she had been a, both been a personal and traditional knowledge, as they walked away and talked about her silent, delicate-looking friend Miss Wilkins, and perhaps planned some little present of the out of their future garden or bountiful stores, which should make Miss Monroe's table a little more tempting to one apparently so frail as Eleanor, for the household was always spoken of as belonging to Miss Monroe, the active and prominent person. By and by, Eleanor herself won her way to their hearts, not by words or deeds, but by her sweet looks and meek demeanour, as they marked her regular attendance at the cathedral service, and when they heard of her consistent visits to a certain parachild school, and of her being sometimes seen carrying a little basin to the cottages of the poor, they began to try and tempt her, with more urgent words, to accompany Miss Monroe in her frequent tea-drinkings at their house. The old dean, that courteous gentleman and good Christian, early become great friends with Eleanor. He had watched at the windows of his great vaulted library till he saw her emerge into, from her garden into the close, and that opened the deanery drawer, and join her, she softly adjusting the measure of his pace to his. This time of his departure from East Chester became a great blank in her life, although she would never accept, or allow Miss Monroe to accept, his repeated invitations to go and pay him a visit at his country place. Indeed, once having tasted comparative peace again at East Chester Cathedral Close, it seemed as though she was afraid of ever venturing out onto those calm precincts. All Mr. Ness's invitations to visit him as his parsonage at Hamley was declined, although he was welcomed at Miss Monroe's on the occasion of his annual visit by every means in their power. He slept at one of the canon's vacant houses and lived with his two friends, who made a yearly festivity to the best of their means in his honour, inviting such the cathedral clergy as were in residence. 
or, if they failed, consenting to the town clergy. Their friends knew well that no presents were so acceptable as those sent while Mr. Ness was with them, and from the dean, who would send them a hamper of choice fruit and flowers from Oxton Park down to the curate, who worked on the same schools as Eleanor, and who was a great fisher, and caught splendid trout, all did their best to help them to give them a welcome to the only visitor they ever had. The only visitor they ever had, as far as the stately gentry knew. There was one, however, who came as often as master could give him a holiday long enough to undertake a journey so distant a place. But few knew of his being a guest at Miss Monroe's, though his welcome was there was not less hearty than Mr. Ness's. This was Dixon. Eleanor had convinced him that he could give her no greater pleasure any time by allowing her to frank him to and from Mr. Eastchester. Whenever he came they were together the greater part of the day, she taking him hither and thither to see all the sights that she thought would interest or please him, but they spoke very little to each other during all this companionship. Miss Monroe had much more to say to him. She questioned him right and left whether Eleanor was out of the room. She learnt that the house at Four Bank was splendidly furnished, and that no money spared on the garden, and that the elderly Miss Hanbury was very well married, and that Brown had succeeded to Jones in the Hardebasher shop. Then she hesitated a little before making her next inquiry. "'I suppose Mr. Corbett never comes into the parsonage now?' "'No, not he. I don't think as how Mr. Ness would have him, but they write letters to each other by times. Old Job. You'll re recollect old Job, ma'am. He did garden for Mr. Ness, and waited in the parlour when there was company. I did say as one day he heard them speaking about Mr. Corbett, and he's a grand counsellor now, as one of them goes about at Aziz time, and speaks in a wig.' "'A barrister, you mean,' said Miss Munro. "'Aye, and he's something more than that, although I can't rightly remember.' Eleanor could have told them both. They had the times lent to them on the second day after publication, by one of their friends in the close, and Eleanor, watching till Miss Monroe's eyes were otherwise engaged, always turned with trembling hands and a beating heart to the reports of the various courts of law. In them, she found, at first rarely, the name she sought for, for the name she dwelt upon, if ever a letter was a study. Mr. Losh and Mr. Duncombe appeared for the plaintiff. Mr. Smith and Mr. Corbett were the defendant. In a year or two that this name appeared more frequently, and generally took the precedence of the other, whatever it might be, then on special occasions his speeches were reported at full length, as if his words accounted weighty, and by and by she saw that he had been appointed a Queen's Council. And this was all she ever heard or saw about him. His once familiar name never passed her lips, except in hurried whisper to Dixon, when he came to stay with them. Eleanor had no idea why when she had parted from mr corbett how total the separation between them was henceforth word to be and so much left seemed left unfinished unexplained it was so difficult at first to break herself the habit of the constant mental reference to him and for many a long year she kept thinking that surely some kind fortune would bring them together again and all this heart-sickness and melancholy estrangement from each other that would both seem only as ugly as dream that had passed away in the morning light the dean was an old man but there was a canon who was older still and whose death had been expected by many, and speculated upon by some, at any time for ten years at least. Canons Holdsworth was too old to show active kindness to anyone, and the Goodstein life was full of thoughtful and benevolent deeds, but he was taken with the other left. Eleanor looked out on the vacant deanery with tearful eyes, the last thing at night, the first thing in the morning. But it's pretty nearly the same time with church dignitaries with him as kings. The dean is dead. Long live the dean. A clergyman from a distant county was appointed, and all the clothes was astir to lean and hear every particular connected with him. Luckily, he came in at the tag end of one of the noble families in the peerage. So, at any rate, all his future associates could learn with tolerable certainty that he was forty-two years of age, married, with eight daughters and one son. D. 
deanery, formerly so quiet and sedated dwelling of one old man, was now to be filled with noise and merriment. Iron wailings were being placed before three windows, evidently to be the nursery. In the summer public city, of open windows and doors, the sound of the busy carpenters were perpetually heard over all the clothes, and by and by wagon-loads of furnitures and carriage-loads of people began to arrive. Neither Miss Munro nor Eleanor felt themselves of sufficient importance or station to call on the newcomers, but they were well acquainted with the proceedings of the family, as if they had been in daily intercourse, that they knew that the eldest Beauchamp was seventeen, and very pretty, only one shoulder was higher than the other, and she was dotingly fond of dancing, and talked a great deal in tete-a-tete, but not much of her mamma was by, and never opened her lips at all if the dean was in the room, and the next sister was wonderfully clever, and supposed to know all the governess could teach her, and to have private lessons in Greek and mathematics from her father, and so on down to the little boy at the preparatory school, and little baby girl in arms. Moreover, Miss Monroe, at any rate, could have stood an examination to the number of servants at the deanery, their division of work, the and the hours of their meals. Presently, a very beautiful, haughty young-looking lady made her appearance in the clothes and in the dean's pew she was said to be his niece the orphan daughter of her brother general beauchamp come to see east chester to reside for the necessary time before her marriage and which was to be performed in the cathedral by her uncle the new dignitary but as callers of the deanery did not see this beautiful bride-elect and the beauchamps had not yet fallen into habits of intimacy with any of their new acquaintances very little was known of the circumstances of this one approaching wedding beyond the particulars given above Eleanor and Miss Munro sat at their drawing-room window, a little shaded by the muslin curtains, watching the busy preparations for the marriage, which was to take place the next day. All morning long, hampers of fruit and flowers, boxes from the railway, and for this time East Chester had got a railway, shop messengers, hired assistants, kept passing backwards and forwards in the busy clothes. Towards afternoon the bustle subsided, the scaffolding was up, and the materials for the next day's feast was carried out of sight. It was to be concluded that the bride-elect was seen to the packing of her trousseau, helped by the merry multitude of cousins, and that the servants were arranging the dinner for the day, or the breakfast for the morrow. So Miss Monroe had settled it, discussing every detail and every probability, as though she was the chief actor, instead of only a distant, uncared-for spectator of the coming event. Eleanor was tired, and now that there was nothing interesting going on, she had fallen back to her sewing, when she was startled by Miss Memo's explanation. Look, look, here are two gentlemen coming along the lime-tree walk. It must be the bridegroom and his friend. Out of much sympathy and some curiosity, Eleanor bent forward and saw, just emerging from the shadow of the trees to the full afternoon sunlight, Mr. Corbett and another gentleman, the former charged, warm age, but still with a fine intellectual face, leaning on the arm of the younger taller man and talking eagerly. The other gentleman was doubtless the bridegroom, Eleanor said to himself, and yet her prophetic heart did not believe her words. Even before the bright beauty at the deanery looked out of the great oil windows of the drawing-room, and blushed and smiled, and kissed her hand, a gesture replied to by Mr. Corbett with much empressement, while the other man only took off his hat, almost as if he saw her there for the first time. Eleanor's greedy eyes watched him till he was hidden from the deanery, unheeding Mrs. Munro's eager, incoherent sentences, in turn entreating, apologising, comforting, and upbraiding. Then she slowly turned her painful eyes to Miss Munro's face, and moved her lips without a sound being heard, and fainted dead away. In all her life she had never done so before, and when she came round she was not like herself. In all probability the persistence and willfulness like, who's usually so meek, meek and docile, showed her during the next twenty-four hours the consequences of fever. She resolved to be present at the wedding, numbers were going, and she would be unseen, unnoticed in the crowd, but whatever befell, before she go she would, and neither the tears nor the prayers of Miss Monroe could keep her back. 
She gave her no reason for this determination, indeed, in all probability she had none to give, so there was no arguing the point. She was inflexible to entreaty, no it has no and no one had any authority over her, except perhaps distant Miss Ness. Miss Munro had all sorts of forebodings to the possible scenes that might come to pass, but all went on as quietly through the fullest sympathy pervaded every individual of the great numbers assembled. No one guessed that the muffled, veiled figure sitting in the shadow behind one of the great pillars was the one who had one hoped to stand at the altar with the same bridegroom, who had now cast tender looks at the beautiful bride, her veil white and fairy-like, Eleanor's black and shrouding as that of any nun. Already Mr. Corbett's name was known throughout the country as that of a great lawyer. People discussed his speeches and character far and wide, and well-informed and legal gossip spoke of him as sure, sure to be offered a judgeship in the next vacancy. So he, the grave and middle-aged and somewhat grey, divided attention with his lovely bride and her pretty train of cousin bridemaids. Miss Munro needed not have feared for Eleanor. She saw and heard all things as in a mist, a dream, as something she had to go through, before she could wake up to reality a brightness in which her youth and the hopes of her youth should be restored, restored, and all those weary years of dreaminess and woe should be revealed as nothing more but the nightmare of a night. She sat motionless enough, still enough, Miss Monroe by her, watching her intently as a keeper watches a madman, with the same purpose, to prevent any outburst by, even by bodily strength, if such restraint was needed. When this was all over, when the principal personages of the ceremony had filed to the vestry to sign their names, when the swarm of townspeople were going out as swiftly as their individual notions and the restraint of the sac sacred edifice permitted, when the great chords of the wedding march clanged out from the organ and the loud bells pealed overhead, Eleanor laid her hands on Miss Monroe. Take me home, she said softly, and Miss Monroe led her home as one leads the blind. End of chapter 11 Recording by Anthony Orr